Hello and welcome to For the Love of Reading, a podcast dedicated to the love of books. I am your host, David Williams. This week, a special election season edition of For the Love of Reading, featuring Dr. Edward Watts discussing voting in the ancient world. Let's go. All right. Once again, I am joined by Dr. Edward Watts from the University of California, San Diego. Uh, Edward has agreed to come back on. We're going to just sort of talk for a little while, a little free-form discussion about voting in the ancient world with the election coming up. Uh, everyone's talking about the voting and how we're, how we're going to get out the vote and how we, how we, how we ballot, you know, mailing, mail-in ballots. And uh, Edward, remember, I remember back in the day uh, when hanging chads were a thing? Um, oh yeah, <laughs> so, fun you know, times. There, there have always been some oddities with elections and voting, and this goes all the way back to the ancient world. So I've asked Edward to come on here and talk to us about what voting was like in ancient uh, Athens and ancient Rome, because in some ways those set up the ideas that were in the minds of the men who wrote the constitution and who created the country, they were thinking about those, both things that worked and things that didn't. So Edward, I'm going to let you just take the ball and run with it. Sure. So I think that um, first, I'm really glad to be back. And I really love talking about this topic, especially at this moment where we're all thinking so seriously about what's going on in the, the larger world. And we're thinking seriously about how voting works and how maybe voting should work. Uh, And I think what you see when you consider voting in antiquity is um, we know a lot of states used voting. I think, you know, the vast majority of states had some form of voting in antiquity. Uh, It's always a question of exactly who could vote and how those votes were counted. Um, But there are a couple states where we know a lot about how this actually worked in practice as well as in theory. Uh, And that's, of course, Rome and Athens. And in Rome, there's a different view from Athens in how voting should work and who should actually be allowed to vote. So in Athens, every Athenian citizen was able to vote. Every male Athenian citizen was able to vote. But there was an expectation that a large critical mass of them would be present at every assembly meeting where there would be a vote taken. Uh, And when the vote was taken, it was done in such a way that everybody crowded into one big space uh, and in the Panics. And this big space where everybody crowded in um, would be where the discussion about policy would take place. Everyone who's a citizen was eligible to speak in this discussion about policy. And then when the discussion concluded, they would do voting by a show of hands. And you would just look around and you would see which side um, of the question had more hands, and that would be how you would resolve it. And the interesting thing about that is we actually have a source that talks about how at certain times, the assembly, if it ran too long, they would have to suspend the voting because they couldn't actually count the number of hands that were raised. Um, So in Athens, the idea is everybody is part of a larger citizen body. And everybody's vote in that citizen body counts equally. And part of the way voting was supposed to function is it affirmed your place in that citizen body. And so you represented an individual hand in this mass of other hands. But in a way, it's also a kind of collective way of affirming the fact that you are Athenian, 
you are participating in this decision-making, but you're doing it as part of a mass of citizens. And that was something that reaffirmed the way Athenian democracy sort of seen itself or saw itself, um, because this was supposed to be a government where everybody was equally invested and everybody was equally um, given a voice to decide how things were, were going to proceed in the state. Uh, in Rome, it's different because in Rome, again, every male citizen has the eligibility to vote. But as the Republic proceeds, there's not really much expectation that every Roman citizen will vote. Uh, so by the time the Republic collapses in the first century BC, there's probably about 6 million Roman citizens in Italy. Um, maybe half of those are men of voting age, maybe a little less, but there's no expectation that all 3 million or so eligible Roman citizen male voters will ever come together and vote at once. In fact, Rome worked under this assumption that the vast majority of people by the late Republic who were Roman citizens wouldn't vote. Um, instead, what Rome assumed was uh, that voting would take place in the city of Rome and whoever turned up to vote would vote uh, as part of different voting blocks that depending on the type of election you had, were allocated in different ways. Uh, so for a number of different sorts of elections or votes on magistrate elections or votes on laws, uh, the assemblies were divided into voting tribes. And there were four urban voting tribes and 31 rural voting tribes. And generally speaking, the urban voting tribes had more people turn up. So in a sense, that's California voting for president. And the rural tribes generally had fewer people turning up. So that's maybe Wyoming voting for president. Um, but in the end, the majority of, you know, the, the majority that decided the election in a Roman election was the majority of voting tribes. And so you voted as a member of your voting tribe. They tallied up the votes of all of the people in that voting tribe. And then whatever the majority in that voting tribe was, that voting tribe would count as one vote, and it would be consistent with the majority of voters in that tribe. But what that meant in practice was the Roman representative democracy, the Roman Republic, never expected everybody to vote. And when they did vote, their vote was kind of channeled through these voting groups so that uh, different votes counted differently. Um, and in Rome, generally speaking, this was something Romans accepted, that their society was a representative democracy and not everybody's voice would count equally. Versus in Athens, the idea was um, that everybody counted equally and all the votes were taken together. And it was assumed that, you know, as many Athenians as possibly could would come together and vote. Uh, and probably, I think the quorum for the Athenian assembly was like 6,000 people. And probably if you had to estimate the total number of voters in Athens at the height of the Athenian democracy, it's maybe 25,000 male citizen voters, maybe even less than that. Uh, and so in Athens, you're going to have a relatively high regular participation in this voting. In Rome, you're going to have a relatively low participation. Um, and so those are I think, the, the fundamental differences in the way that voting is understood in those two, those two societies. But I think it also reflects something fundamental about how those societies put themselves together and understood their relationship, uh, the citizens' relationship to the society itself. Really fascinating. Um, one of the things uh, you hear a lot uh, on, you know, if you're 
crazy enough to descend into the the sewer that is Twitter, uh, <laughs> you'll get into the argument I, I see quite often between people talking about uh, democracy and no, this is a republic. And of course, we know that the United States was designed as a, as a republic, but there, but the republic is a type of democracy. It simply is not. Um, the, the way we, the way we do voting is a little bit different sometimes, uh, so I want to talk a little bit about that. But something I found interesting when you were talking about how the Romans were divided up into tribes and the tribes would sort of vote as a whole, and yeah. it, it it made me think about the way that uh, the constitutional convention actually worked in America, because that's mm-hmm. the way that was originally. That you know each you had twelve well thirteen states so thirteen delegations. Almost said twelve. Good lord, uh, thirteen <laughs> delegations, and um, each delegation voted within itself, and then what, whatever the majority was, that's how that that delegation voted. So Pennsylvania yeah. got one vote, you know, Maryland got one vote, et cetera. Um, and in fact, I remember that was one of the ways that they passed the Declaration of Independence because several members of the Pennsylvania delegation did not want to vote for it. But they also didn't want to be known as voting against it, so they simply did not show up that day, allowing Pennsylvania uh, to, um, to you know, Ben Franklin to actually be the deciding vote for Pennsylvania. Um, weird, weird trivia, I remember. But it's, it's just something that, that struck me when you said that. It reminded me of the way that that was sort of set up. And you can also see that in a way when you look at how uh, the presidential election is set up, where if the number of electors, the electoral college – the same kind of thing. You have this waiting system, but then when they get there, if it's you know if it's tied, it goes to it goes to uh, to Congress. But once again, each state's delegation votes as a whole. Right. So you yeah, don't I have five hundred and thirty, uh, you know, five hundred and thirty-five people voting for for the president in Congress. You have fifty different delegations, and whoever gets twenty-six votes becomes president. Right. And I think that that's a exact parallel in a sense for the Roman model. So like in a Roman election for, let's just say the tribune of the plebs, um, the vote that's actually recorded is going to be 18 to 17, you know, um, in the same way that the actual vote for president isn't 72 million to 70 million. It's 270 to 268. Because the Electoral College is the vote that matters, not the popular vote. Uh, And I think that's an interesting way for us to think about the Roman system. But I think there's also a basic assumption that republics make that, especially now that we're having this argument about the U.S. is not a a democracy, it's a republic. One of the things that's missing from that argument uh, is an assumption that Romans made, and I think our founding fathers made as well. Um, which is that you can have unequal representation in a republic, but there's a, that's a vice in their view, right? This is a function of the system, but it's not an ideal thing um, for the system to function only in that fashion. There has to be a sort of compensating virtue, and the compensating virtue is this policy of consensus or compromise. Um, because even if you are voting on the other side of an election, a system that distills your vote into a representative, in a sense, works only if it's understood by that representative that they represent everybody, not just the people who voted them, voted for them, but everybody who voted. Right. Exactly. Um, and this consensus is the key thing that makes a republic functional, 
when you have unequal representation. And I think we can see in the United States, nobody argued about, you know, I mean, there, nobody argued about whether the electoral college was a just or unjust thing in 1988 or 1984. Um, people only started arguing about it when it became clear that this was a distillation of people's views that wasn't corresponding in the, in the biggest sense to what the country wanted. Um, and because you then have a system that unequally represents the voices of some people and doesn't respond to the concerns of the people whose voices are not represented, then you have a crisis. Um, and in Rome, you get that eventually. Uh, but for hundreds of years, the Republic works because the people who are elected through this unequal system understand that there is a need not just to make policy on the basis of the few people who elected them, but to make policy that reflects the broader, the broader interests of everyone. Um, and that's what a republic, when a republic works best, that's what it's doing. Um, the unequal representation is something that's sort of compensated for by this emphasis on consensus and compromise and um, I, I, idealization of representing everybody or as close to everybody as you can get. I think that's the idea that, of course, you see at the various levels, um, and you know, once you're, you are definitely the expert on on the Roman uh, on the Roman side of it. Uh, I, I'm not as uh, as familiar as I'd like to be. As I think most of us are not familiar would like to be with uh, the Roman style. But my my understanding is you have the multiple offices. You have the tribune of the of the plebs. You have the consuls, you have all the Senate, all these different positions where the Romans are – I don't think the Romans get enough, uh, get enough credit for innovation. There's this, there's this constant balance. Of course, you see that once again in the founding of the U.S. where you had this understanding that, well, it is important that you know, people have equal representation. So we create the House of Representatives which of course in its initial format, I believe it was like 45,000 votes. You know, one, right. one you know, they, it was actually supposed to be broken up. I think someone suggested they did that today. It would be something like over a thousand people in Congress, uh, like 2000 people. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's kind of a nightmare. But, but the idea was that, you know, there was going to be, you know, you weren't going to have this Wyoming gets X number and versus Maryland, or of course, Wyoming didn't exist, but I mean, you know, but you know, the, there was this, there's equality in the House of Representatives. Then the states would balance that off with the Senate because, you know, that way that Virginia and Pennsylvania and New York couldn't dominate over South Carolina and uh, Vermont. For example, because they were so small, so there was a there was a balance and a check there. You know, there's always these back and forth, you know, and it seems to me that's what the, the Romans were constantly trying to accomplish as well. Yeah, I think to a degree. I mean, I think the idea that the Romans had, because the Republic is founded as a reaction to the Roman monarchy, and the idea that the Romans had was that the, the monarchy uh, in its final form had consolidated unchecked power in the hands of the king and the upper middle class. And so the, the old way the monarchy was, was put together uh, saw the king selected out of the hereditary aristocracy in Rome. By, this is a group called the patricians. Uh, and the second to last king led a revolution where he basically took power and reorganized his power base so it responded to an upper middle class 
um, that was in some ways wealthier than some of the hereditary aristocracy. And uh, the Republic started as a counter-revolution to that by patricians. Uh, and so they created the consulship as a balanced um, office where there were two people holding this office. And functionally, they did many of the same things that the king did, but uh, they checked each other. And so there wouldn't be this capacity by one person to seize power for himself because he always had a colleague. And this became the governing principle for all of the offices in the Republic. Everything had to have a colleague. Um, but what they did mess with repeatedly was um, who was eligible for these offices, how they were elected, who was, ca who was capable of voting in that election, and how the votes would be distributed. Uh, and you see at various points Romans sort of messing around with this. Uh, even in the late Republic, when there's a, a large expansion of citizenship, so that everyone in Italy suddenly becomes a Roman citizen, there's a lot of arguments about how you allocate these people across voting tribes. Like, do you put them all in one voting tribe? And this was a, a kind of conservative response to prevent these new Italian citizens from overwhelming the electorate. Uh, and so one reaction to expanding citizenship so dramatically is to kind of channel their vote all into one voting tribe. So in the end, they don't really matter that much. And so one voting tribe would have you know, a million people in it. And uh, another one might have a couple ten tens of thousands in it. Uh, and so there's always a, a kind of game about um, how to play within the rules the Republic more or less observes to try to increase or decrease the voice of certain groups of people in that state. Um, but there is always this idea in the Republic that you, you have to check uh, individuals from becoming too powerful. And if that means doing things to reallocate voting uh, blocks in certain ways, then you do that. If that means creating colleagues or expanding the number of magistrates, then you do that too. Now, something I, as always, you know, the dangerous thing, something I think I remember reading, you know, you know wonderful, you know, wonderful uh, introduction. In the Roman elections it, themselves, as you said, they were broken up into, I believe it was 31 tribes. Uh, 35. 35 tribes, sorry. Eventually. I mean, it's, um, it grows over time. Right. But, it, but, with, but even within the tribe itself, were, weren't the, uh, were the votes, they were weighted in some way, if I remember correctly, weren't they? I mean, were, were certain, did, was there a certain uh, privilege that uh, the, wealthier, the wealthier citizens had over the poorer citizens? It wasn't just sort of like, you know, today we, we all go and just line up at the, at the voting booth. Nobody gets to go in front because they're, you know, anybody special. The, the mayor has to stand behind me if, you know, unless I let him through. Um, but I, I seem to remember, and once again, this might, and it might be from that, from, from the Stephen Sayer novel I read. So, you know, I don't, it's one of those things that I, I remember in passing. Yeah. So there's a Roman assembly that, um, came out of the second to last King. It's called the Comitia Centuriata. And this is based on economic, uh, it's based on economic positioning. Um, and that, that's an assembly where the top two groups in that assembly are not anywhere close to the majority of the population, but they by themselves can sway an election. Um, and so there are certain things the Comitia Centuriata votes on. I mean, one of them is election of, of the consulship, I believe. But, um, but that is one where the votes of, of a certain class of rich people matters more than everybody else in Roman society. Um, within the, the actual voting tribes, 
it's a little more subtle. So it's clear that the rural tribes are never going to have the same number of voters present as the urban tribes, because obviously you vote in the city of Rome. There's no satellite polling places. You can't vote in Cume or Naples or, um, you know, Fazola or whatever. Uh, so you have to be in Rome to vote. And if you live far away from Rome in the countryside, you're not going in. Uh, and the only people who really will be in those rural voting tribes who go into Rome will either be people that are like bust in by a rich person um, or rich people who are in the city of Rome or have the leisure to go to Rome because the issue matters so much. And so what you would see effectively is um, those votes within the voting tribes would disproportionately turn on the votes of wealthier people, not because those people um, were given more of a voice officially, but just because functionally those were the people who would vote in the largest numbers in those um, tribes that were underrepresented on an election day. Got it. So it'd be like uh, your case, everybody would have to go to Sacramento to vote, um, but not everybody can afford to go to Sacramento. So um, only those who can, who could afford to take the time off or have their, have an entourage with them. Yeah, so it, that's, a, I think, a great example, right? Not a lot of people from San Diego would vote in California if you had to show up. And basically, in Rome, you voted with a, paper, with a, with a ballot um, that you dropped into a basket. And so if you can't physically be there to drop that, that ballot in the basket, you are not voting. And not many people from San Diego would drive to Sacramento to vote on very many things, Um it just would be a fact of, of the way things would work. But in somewhere like California, where the, you know, the state is massive um, and there is a north-south divide and there is an east-west divide, uh, you would see our policies within the state look really, really different if that was how elections worked. Um, you know, I, I think you would see um, massive shifts in the way the state functioned. And it's very easy to understand why that would be the case. Uh, if, you know, Los Angeles and San Diego basically didn't really vote very often right. uh, or in very large numbers. And if they're, they're essentially the people who voted for that, those areas or those tribes uh, were of a specific uh, um, financial group. <laughs> right. If the only people who voted from, say, the tribe of Los Angeles or the tribe of San Diego were the people who could uh, afford to fly first class to Sacramento, um, the votes wouldn't mean very much. But if you had voting tribes based on regions of California, you might have 15 people voting from, say, Imperial County. And that would count the same as a million people voting in Sacramento or right. voting from Sacramento. Well, there's no way that could possibly be abused there. Now, is there? <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, uh, something that I know people talk about, uh, and, you know, it, it's always fun. The Greeks had a, had a, a thing they used to vote on, um, ostracism. Uh-huh. Uh, tell us a little bit about ostracism. That's always a, uh, a fun topic to talk about. <laughs> so that's a bit – so the, the technical aspects of that are a bit beyond my comfort level, but basically ostracism was – a feature of Athenian democracy where if somebody um, was deemed to be too important or a threat to the, the democracy, um, people could propose that this person be uh, removed from the city for a select period of time. 
And we actually have, so it's called ostracism because the way you would vote for this is um, with a straka, which are basically broken pieces of pottery. And people would sketch their name onto uh, the name of the person they wanted ostracized on it. Um, and we have some of these, you know, we have like actual astraka that were things that were put forward in these votes for ostracism. Um, and there's actually a famous passage where uh, I think it's Themistocles, where we hear that um, in one of the elections or one of the votes for this, somebody came up to Themistocles and asked him to write Themistocles on the Astraka <laughs> because he wanted to vote for him to be ostracized. Um, so, you know, so it, it's something where um, it's a feature of democracy, especially radical democracy in Athens, uh, where they basically want to be sure that this equality between citizens is maintained. Um, and if that means that somebody is getting kind of too big or too arrogant or too powerful, you need to have a mechanism where people can say, I think this person is too powerful and they need to be sent away. Um, and in Themistocles' case, he is actually sent away. I can see how that could be abused. At the same time, the thought that we could, as a, as a nation, not just vote for president, but vote to like literally make someone leave the country for a decade. I, I think there's, there might be a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I think that the problem uh, in a society like ours versus Athens, in Athens, like you would know these people, maybe right. not personally, but, um, you know, but the citizen body, the whole population of Attica, I think is maybe 250,000 people. Right. But um, within the city of Athens, it's it's a small, I mean, it's a fraction of that. And most of the people who have the eligibility to vote for ostracism, they have physically seen these people over years, right? And they know these people either personally or they at least, you know, have experienced being in their presence quite a bit um, versus in our society, uh, you know, how many people have actually really met the president? Right, Not, exactly. You know, it, it's a small fraction of the 330 odd million people here who have ever even been in the same space as a president of the United States. And so our capacity to judge this um, is just so different from what, what Athenian democracy would have had. And so I think it's, um, it's tricky because one of the most uh, powerful portraits of Athenian democracy we get comes from Plato, who was not a big fan. Right. Uh, and I think when you, if you read about Athenian democracy through Plato, um, you have an impression that this isn't something people took super seriously. Uh, but I think everything else we can see is regular people in Athenian democracy did take it really seriously. And they didn't use the institutions and they didn't want to use the institutions of Athenian democracy on petty kind of personal feuds or other things like that. I mean, they, they really did think that these institutions served the state well and served the people well. And really wanted to do their part to make sure that it continued to, to serve the people well. Um, and I think what Plato gives us is a, a portrait of Athenian democracy that sometimes seems like um, it's a group of vindictive people who don't really think things through and aren't really um, capable of running a state. Uh, but I think most Athenians would say, well, maybe there are some people who are kind of moronic occasionally. But really, this works pretty well. It works you know, for two centuries, this is an institution um, that Athenians really very strongly valued. Uh, and I think Athenians, most Athenians would defend this as um, a serious way to run a state that uh, does ensure that people basically are treated equally and justly. 
Um, well, Plato wouldn't agree, but <laughs> of course, I mean, the, you know, if you think about it, Plato had uh, two things. One is, I mean, if I if my memory serves fairly well, it wasn't the the, the Republic. I'm sorry, the Athenian democracy wasn't much longer for the world when Plato was writing. He was writing towards the end of the the end of the era, as it were. And so, of course, as things wind down, sometimes they're not so good. Also, I think he was a little bit bitter over the uh, death of Socrates. Oh, he's more than a little bit bitter, yeah. <laughs> uh, and Athenian democracy, by the end of Plato's life, is winding down. I think that the the way that you would, uh, like the way people kind of close the book on Athenian democracy is by looking at the situation with um, basically what happens in Athens after Philip of Macedon and Alexander the Great reduce Athenian power. And at that point, there's a Macedonian garrison that um, is eventually placed in Athens. And the ability of Athens to fully independently run the democracy uh, is curtailed in the later part of the 4th century BC. Um, I mean, they're still running, they're still having votes, they're still electing archons, and that continues. Um, And the last Athenian archon we know about is in the later part of the 5th century AD. Um, So aspects of this continue, and the institutions... Uh, that Athenian democracy created remain things that Athenians really strongly value for a very, very long time. But the democracy itself, as the um, as a completely independent entity that is governing political affairs in Athens, you're right, it doesn't much last long beyond Plato's death. And I think Plato dies in, I believe it's 339 BC, 337 BC. Um, and so within about a generation, I think you would say that the sort of classical heyday of uh, Athenian democracy has about um, the sun has about set on it. So I guess one thing I mean I won't let have to let you go here. I know for too long, but uh, something I was I was curious about. You know, just sort of the, and voting took place annually, right? Because that isn't that mm-hmm. how yeah. So so that you know talk about terms of office. They did not have term limits, but it was generally kind of considered to be. Um, uh, improper to to rerun for office back to back. If I re- if I'm remembering this, yeah, it's generally seen as bad form to run for the same office multiple terms in a row. Um, by the late Republic, people are doing it. You know, this in the second century, we see people doing this. Um, but people would complain if you did it. You still could win. I mean, the the general Marius wins. Uh, I think five consulships in a row because he's so successful and popular uh, but people complained about how this was this was unseemly and this isn't something that should be done uh, and occasionally if a politician is um, really making trouble there is a real strong reaction against him running for a second term so we're we're at one of our one of the annual and was it was it was it a set time every year or i'm assuming that the being in the ancient world, it needed some kind of auguries to make sure that the gods were happy before you started voting. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that like if a lightning has been happening, we don't go out and vote, folks, <laughs> so, or something like that. Um, but was, was there like a regular time? Like, you know, we have the first, the first Tuesday in November. Um, um, various offices are elected at various times. There's also votes for uh, laws and other sorts of proposals, and those would occur just whenever. Um, so, you know, someone would propose a piece of legislation. There would be an, there would be a meeting where the um, the benefits and costs of that legislation would be discussed, and then there would be a vote. And so, 
so it's there's four assemblies that run during you know there's four assemblies that run during the Roman Republic, uh, and there had to be an organization of the calendar so that two assemblies were not meeting on the same day. And um, so if you if you really liked voting in Rome, you could vote a lot. There's a lot <laughs> of times that you could go in and vote. Uh, and different magistracies are different magistrates are elected at different times of the year. Uh, and different terms of office start at different times in the year. So the Tribune of the Plebs is elected earlier than the consuls are elected, and they take office earlier. So there's a occasionally a period, um, usually it's like the end of November through January 1st, when the Tribunes of the Plebs for the next year have been elected and taken office, but the consulships from the previous year are still, still being held. Okay. Uh, and so there's a lot of voting going on. Um, and occasionally, if it is a bad day to vote or the auspices are not good, um, or later in the Republic, if there's violence, um, voting will be suspended or it won't happen when it's intended. And so we do have to understand that there's a little bit more flexibility than we're really used to. There's not one day when Romans vote right. everything. Okay. Now, that, that triggered a little something there. You said voting on laws. Now, of course, what we're used to is that we elect representatives. They go off to Congress or off to the state legislature, and they make the laws. And if we don't like the laws, then we chunk the you know the rats out the next uh, the next election cycle. Uh, now there are some things. I mean, we all see this on um, on our ballots every year. There are certain propositions, or uh, in Louisiana, we we have to amend the Constitution every single year. It seems like California well, part, too. So. In Rome, are the laws voted on by the people? Is it created by the assembly? Or is it kind of like here that certain things the people vote on, certain things the politicians just implement? Um, so there are policies that are implemented. But when you're actually talking about a law uh, that, you know, you want to propose a grain dole for the citizens of Rome, for example, um, what would happen is you would – uh, raise the proposal. You would probably try, if you're most politicians, you try to get the Senate to say this is a good idea. If the Senate says it's a good idea, uh, you would then probably hold public meetings and the public meetings would discuss the virtues of the law. Uh, and then if no one else objected, none of your colleagues in, in your office objected, um, then you would have a vote and the voting tribes um, you know, assuming this is like a law put together by a tribune of the plebs, the voting tribes would come together and they would vote. And if 18 of them vote in favor of what you've proposed, then it's a law and it, you know, then it takes effect. Uh, if you don't get the votes, then it doesn't take effect. And so the initiation of legislation, um, generally speaking, is something that's going to come from an elected magistrate and not from just like the people want to do it. Um, and really not just from the Senate either. You know, there's a consultation and the Senate doesn't have the power to call these things to vote. Um, but in practice, uh, what has to happen is there's a, a long process of negotiation, which is how the Romans encouraged consensus building. So you couldn't just ram something through on a very narrow majority in the vote of the tribal assembly without there being really significant consequences to, you know, your reputation. Um, and there would be a lot of inertia that would prevent you from doing this. So occasionally you do have people propose something that the Senate opposes and that their colleagues oppose, 
but they really have to um, disrupt the system to actually get a vote on it. Okay, so that's uh, it's again very fascinating. I'm thinking, boy, there are ways that that could either streamline our system or completely blow it up. <laughs> I'm not sure how to how um, work in a in a in a country like ours where you had to basically every every law Congress passed had to get a majority of the states to agree to it. Um, that would probably destroy the destroy the republic, but very quickly, I think. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, but you know, but I, what I, what you're saying though, I think is interesting because, as you said, it's kind of you don't just unless you're a radical, a, a Tiberius Gracchus, for example, you don't just say I'm I'm going to blast through with this thing. You have an idea, and you go and you basically ensure you have the votes before you bring it up. I think that it's it's more of a nuanced thing where you um, where people will not even agree to have a discussion if they think that the proposal is too radical, um, but they will agree to have a discussion. Uh, you know, they, well, you you can have a discussion, um, but they can but your colleagues can veto the law and that will just stop it. Uh, and so, if something is too radical in your tribune of the plebs, like Tiberius Gracchus, one of your colleagues will veto the law and then that's the end of it. Um, and what Tiberius Gracchus did that was so radical is he then um, called the assembly together and and said that they should or ask them to depose the tribune who vetoed his law. Uh, and that's something that is really a quite radical break from the consensus politics that Romans had really prized for centuries. Um, and so that's a situation where um, you have the culture of consensus uh, run up against the practical limitations of what was legally permissible. And custom then doesn't correspond to law. Uh, and Tiberius Gracchus is kind of walking through this loophole where legally he could do what he did, but custom said it was a really, really bad idea to even think about doing something like right. that. Sometimes could and should are very, two very different things. Exactly. And I think that's the thing that is always missing in these discussions of republics, where um, what's constitutionally uh, not prohibited isn't necessarily always a good idea. And uh, it can actually be very, very destructive, even though it's not constitutionally prohibited to do this sort of thing. And in Tiberius Gracchus's case, um, it was very destructive, even though uh, legally he could get away with it. Um, basically everybody agreed that what he did was so far beyond the pale that uh, he shouldn't have done it, even though he could create a legal rationale for why it was something that was possible. Right. I mean, it's just, um, it's the, the whole purpose of a system like the Roman system and like our system is not for one side to get enough power to beat the other side down, but for there to be enough power distribution where people have to come together to compromise and work out a plan. And right. uh, when, when that, when that breaks down, then you end up with a form of, of tribalism where it's just, well, uh, Okay, you just wait. We're gonna get these. We're gonna get those guys next time. We're just gonna get enough people, and then once we've got you know enough, we can we can do whatever we want. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's the real danger when a republic kind of bogs down. Um, you don't you don't have that regulator that says yes. There are issues with how voices are represented in this system and how unequally they're represented, but. 
this system also requires that you acknowledge the needs and desires of people who maybe didn't vote for you. Uh, right. And that's the very basic function. When a republic is functioning as it should, that's the very basic thing it needs to do. Um, and uh, that's also something that I think Romans understood very well, um, but they didn't always practice. And when they didn't practice it, it caused a lot of problems. Yes, indeed. So <laughs> two, two more things here. I'm, uh, I'll, I'll um, let, you, uh, let you get back to your family. Uh, one is just kind of, can you give us a little picture of what the, of what voting day would look like for the, for the Roman? So, you know, the, 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 the citizen of Rome, maybe a, maybe a, a tailor or a, a wine merchant or whatever is going to go out and vote. What, what is, what does he experience? What is his day like? That's a great question. Um, some of it we know, and some of it we don't really know. Um, we know that they would come together in a large central space. By the end of the Republic, it's, it's often the Campus Martius. Um, but they would come together in a large central space, and then they would divide themselves up into their voting tribe groups. Um, we know that the vote took place by, by the late Republic. Um, there was a platform that the voter would walk down carrying his ballot, and he would drop the ballot into the basket. Uh, there were initially, when secret ballots began in the 130s BC, there were observers who just would kind of watch. Um, there was a law passed in the 120s that said that this is now like nobody, it's, the plank has to be or the path has to be so narrow that nobody can actually see what you're voting. Um, and so you would then vote in the voting tribe that you belong to. Uh, you would then wait while the results for each voting tribe was tallied. And then eventually they would announce the tribal votes one by one. Um, and so we know, for example, when Tiberius Gracchus does hold this vote to depose the tribune who vetoed his legislation or threatened to veto his legislation, uh, we know that 17 tribes voted in favor of this. And Tiberius Gracchus actually paused this to ask the guy if he'd be willing to rescind his veto before the 18th tribe's result was, was, was read out. Uh, and the guy refused to do it. The 18th tribe voted to depose him, and he was then deposed. Um, and so this is kind of what we can imagine for this, this process is, uh, you know, you get together in a group, you then divide up into your voting tribes, you then vote individually as a person walking down this plank and dropping your ballot in. Uh, and then there's a counting and an announcing tribe by tribe of how the vote is going. Uh, and then um, usually I think when they get to 18, I think they stop. I think that they stop the announcement. Um, but I'm not... 100% sure that I know that, and I'm not sure that we know that. So it wasn't, it wasn't important to know how badly you won or lost. It was just a matter of, okay, we got what we need. We're, we don't need to do any more counting. I, I believe that's the case, but I don't remember for sure. Okay. <laughs> And then the other thing, and it just it sort of popped up because it popped up in the uh, yesterday, I think, or day it may have been, I think it was yesterday actually, uh, in the news, and it was something we have kind of briefly touched on, well, more than briefly touched on in our last conversation. But uh, the president has announced that this is uh, going. You know, he's he's announced that this is Character Matters Week. I'm not sure why it only matters this week, but, you know, there you go. Um, and that is something we did talk about, and I think that 
you know, all cynicism aside, as hard as it is to put it aside right now in our in our day and age, but um, to a Roman in even 60 BC or 120 or 240 BC to an American in 1790 or in 1840. If you said that character mattered when it came to who should uh, represent the Republic, I don't think people would look at you like you're crazy. I think people no. would have would have looked at that and said, well, of course, character matters. So in what ways, in what ways did character matter to the people of Rome? Yeah, I think that character, if you were to ask that question, every single Roman would say it matters so fundamentally um, that there's just, it's like a question they wouldn't even understand asking. Um, and you do have Romans who really do make their political career about their upstanding character. Um, and even figures who, like, their character is kind of questionable, uh, they still understand the benefit of being seen as having good character. Um, I mean, Caesar is a great example of this. Like, he's not, he's not an upstanding person in his, like, personal behavior. Um, but he also does understand that it's important, like, for example, when his... Uh, when Clodius uh, is found at his house during a festival where there's only supposed to be women there, uh, that's a bad scene. And Caesar does not want to, does, you know, just chooses to divorce his wife because uh, he has to be seen as above reproach. And uh, even someone like Caesar, who didn't really run on his character, uh, understood that it was important to maintain at least the, the plausible impression that you were of high character. Uh, and then people like Cato or Brutus uh, traded on this idea that they were um, morally upstanding people who were guided by principle over practicality, and they uh, always tried to live according to the principles that they felt were were pure and honest and desirable. Um, Cicero, at one point, uh, chides Cato by saying that Cato... Um, Cato lives in the Republic of Plato rather than the Republic of Romulus. Uh, but there he's saying, you know, Cato has these like, great theoretical ideas about how the Republic should work. But, you know, come on, man, wake up. Like, the, this is the real world. And Rome doesn't really work that way in practice. I can only um, imagine Cato's response to being told he acts like he's acting like a Greek. <laughs> well, Cato, the, the younger, um, is a Stoic philosopher. Uh, he he has kind of broken with the old anti-Hellenism of his, uh, I think it's his grand, great-grandfather. Um, yeah, so in, in, in his case, uh, he would probably have a more nuanced response to that, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's really great, Ed. Thanks so much for uh, coming on and talking about all of this. Um, it's really fascinating. I think that to see things that were taking place 2000 years ago, we wouldn't feel 100% out of place. I mean, we'd be pretty disoriented, but I think that if we were to bring, um, well, (laughs) if we were to bring Cicero and Catiline into 2020, I think they might be able to get their bearings. In some ways. Yeah. I think that they, I think that they would understand some of the conversations that we're having right now about how a Republic should work. 
what is desirable. Uh, and uh, I think that that sort of inspiration is something that can help us think through some of the challenges we're facing. Um, because the big structural questions about what does a republic need to do and how do you balance the need for um, representing large numbers of people in a decision-making process with the need for um, building consensus so that even the people who don't have the largest voice still have their needs met. Uh, that's something Cicero in particular would completely understand. Uh, I mean, he would completely uh, emphasize to us that that's a question we really need to think seriously about because you can't have a republic without a commitment to consensus. That's, uh, that is very, very true. So, well, Ed, thanks so much for coming on. Is there anything else that you'd like to uh, share with us? No, this was fun. Um, well, thanks so much for coming, and uh, be sure to check uh, our our former podcast, our previous podcast, where Ed and I talked about his book, Mortal Republic. Um, if for some reason you've listened and have not gone out and bought the book yet, uh, I don't know what you're waiting for. Go buy it right <laughs> now. Just just click on the, uh, the notes in the podcast. It's right down there. Click on it. Buy the book. Um, you will not regret it. It is a wonderful book. Uh, the audio book is great, too. In fact, if you buy it through Kindle, you can buy both the Kindle version, and they'll give you a discount on the audiobook version. You can both listen and read. So there is no excuse not to get this. It is a wonderful book, and it is incredibly timely. I hope that you've enjoyed this uh, little uh, walk through the past, and uh, let us know what you think. I'd just like to take one more opportunity to thank Ed for coming on the show. This was a wild hair that I had, and I sent him an email and said, what do you think? He loved the idea. Email me back. When can we do it? The only time we had was tonight. So we set it all up between kids and work and COVID and technical problems. At one point, Ed had a problem with his Wi-Fi and had to go out to the car to finish off the interview. So I just really appreciate him taking the time and coming on here and really educating us about how the ancient world worked. I hope you enjoyed it. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave a five-star review. Leave us a rating. Let us know what you think. Check out the website over at For the Love of Reading dot substack dot com and we will see you next time. <laughs>